Hey everyone, thanks for being here today. It's cold outside. Thanks for choosing to make the trip here to Solace this morning. Uh, if you are watching online because you couldn't make the trip, we're glad that you're choosing to join us online today at solacechurch.com. And also, if you're guests here today, thanks for being here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called No Other Name, and we're talking about what it means that, for instance, Jesus himself would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a powerful statement. It's an exclusive statement, which makes Christianity the means by which we can experience a right relationship with God. That is no small statement. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, there's many world religions, and, and Christianity came out of Judaism, a Jewish uh, understanding of God. And so that is a bold declaration for Jesus to have made. Jesus certainly is the one who, who, uh, who stated that, John chapter uh, 14. We've been studying, though, a passage of Scripture related to a man who spent some time with this Jesus, this, no, this, this one way to God person, and we've been studying about him in the book of Acts. So for context, let me just catch you up. Last week we talked about the story of Peter and John when they healed a crippled man who had been crippled basically 40-something years. Uh, Peter and John, through the power that raised Jesus from the dead, we see, brings this crippled man to, to health so that he can walk. So they don't have any money, but they have this name that brings people from, from death to life and from, 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 from crippled to, to healed or whole. And so this man is miraculously healed in front of a, a, a very large crowd of people. The crowd of people want to know what they are experiencing. They are very interested in understanding how Peter and John were able to be a part of this miraculous event. And so we're going to read this morning the account of Peter's words to the crowds. That's where we're going to land. But before we land there, remember the rest of the story unfolds like this. Peter and John, after sharing with the crowds how they accomplished this, are reprimanded by a group of religious leaders who do not want Peter and John to be talking about the name, about Jesus. They are reprimanded, they are thrown into jail, they are actually uh, miraculously brought out of jail, they are eventually again brought before this group of religious leaders, they're actually brought before a large group of religious leaders in the first century called the Sanhedrin, and basically what we learned last week is there was a man named Gamaliel, and Gamaliel, who was one of those in the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, looked at the, a group of people that was assembled to deal with Peter and John, and, and Gamaliel says, guys, here's the deal. If this is all from man, this is going to fail and die out. Don't worry about it. But th if this is from God, you're not going to be able to be successful in standing against it. This is going to move forward. And so what we learned last week is that Christianity, from that point forward, really exploded in terms of numbers of people coming to know the name, the name of Jesus. It was millions within the first couple of hundred years, and it's in the billions of people today who, who claim the name of Jesus as their Savior, Right? And what we learned last week, though, is that doesn't prove that Jesus is the Messiah. It doesn't prove what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Do you remember what we learned last week? This is what, we, this is what he claims, that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Just because Christianity is the largest religion in the world and the fastest growing through conversion in the world does not in and of itself mean that this statement about Jesus is true. And, like a good communicator, I left you there last week. 
And I said, that's all we're going to cover today. We're going to stop like abruptly in the middle of this conversation so that we can pick up the story again this week. Because last week I didn't have time to help you understand and help us understand why Peter's statement about the name of Jesus is the name by which we are saved is so dead on accurate. That this is not just some faith claim, but this is actually an event that has defensible evidence. Like you can act. You can't prove it with 100% certainty, but it's a powerful evidence-based claim that Peter was making. Now, let me take you to Scripture to show you in Acts chapter 3 exactly what Peter had to say to the crowds as they are trying to figure out how to process what Peter and John did by healing this crippled man. So, look with me in Acts chapter 3. It won't be on your screen. Uh, This part at least won't. I want to read it to you from the New International Version 84 edition. Not to be confused with the new New International Version that's out here. This is the old New International Version. Acts chapter 3 verse 11 records for us what Peter says to the crowd. So, while the beggar, verse 11, held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our power, our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith, he goes on to say, in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Right now. Now Peter is going to really make this story personal. He's going to look at the Jewish audience in which he is addressing, and he is going to declare something powerful that actually becomes very persuasive in people in this story coming to meet the name Jesus. Verse 17, Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Christ would suffer. Hold on to that verse. Did you see what Peter just did? Peter said, I know that you didn't understand this, but God told us a long time ago that this was going to happen. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God. That's a powerful turn in the story. The prophets told us this was what was going to be. Now, therefore, repent. Verse 19, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Now, church, this is, this is really, really interesting. Peter appealing 
to a Jewish crowd suggests to them that they should believe in the name of Jesus, not simply because they performed a miracle and healed a cripple, but rather that prophets a long time ago told you it was going to happen. Now, what happens? After Peter makes this appeal, he invites them to receive Jesus. He invites them to receive the name that is above all names, the name by which we can be saved. And thousands of Jewish people come to faith on this day. It's interesting, isn't it? Prophecy led to belief. Now, this got me to thinking about the whole storyline in the first century about how people uh, uh, shared the good news of Jesus. How, how did the Christmas story, the fact that this baby had been born in Bethlehem, how did it actually begin to affect the lives of those in the first century? It was clear that Peter leveraged prophecy. But did anyone else in Scripture leverage prophecy to convince or to prove that Jesus was the name under which we might be saved? I, it was interesting. I don't know if you've ever studied Scripture at this level before or this way. But I also noticed that one of, one of Peter's contemporaries, a man named Paul, who you might have heard before, who wrote much of the New Testament, who, who had a, this incredible encounter with God in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 18, we see Paul on what's called a missionary journey. In other words, he's just going out in the Roman Empire. And he's talking about the name. He's sharing the story of Jesus. Paul also appeals to prophecy for proof of the Messiahship of Jesus. Now, in Acts chapter 17, I want to show you what Paul uh, does in, by way of using prophecy. This comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, there's going to be a letter, an epistle, written by Paul to the church at Thessalonica. There's a couple of them. It's called Thessalonians in Scripture. You can read them. This is when he actually made the trip to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Verse number two, it goes on to say, as his custom was, and this was typical of Paul, to first go to the Jewish synagogue if there was one in the city, and then he would go uh, into the city streets and other venues and continue to preach Jesus. He would start at the synagogue if there was one. Paul went into the synagogue, and on, the, on three Sabbath days, three cons uh, consecutive Saturdays, the Sabbath day, underline this in your Bible if you underline he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, I know in the 21st century church, when we see the word scripture, we think of like even the New Testament, which we're reading from right now. But you guys know this. There was no New Testament when Paul was, was living and he was going to Thessalonica. He was the New Testament. He was living out the, 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 the story of the New Testament, which would be written about him. So he reasoned with them from what? What scripture? It's the Old Testament. It's the stories that we call our Old Testaments. What did he do with the scriptures? Verse 3, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This is Paul's words. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. This is the Greek word Christos, remember from last week, which in Hebrew is the same equivalent word Messiah. All right, verse number 4, notice what happens. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did, get this, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, us. Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews, and not a few prominent women. In other words, there were some prominent women in the, in the community, and they also responded to the message. Think about this for a moment. When Peter, by the way, Peter was chosen to be the one to take the gospel to the Jewish people, 
speaks about prophecy, thousands of people come to know Christ as he proves from Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul, who was chosen to be the one to take the gospel to us kind of people, us Gentiles in the first century, takes the gospel to them and proves from Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah, and a large number of Gentiles, Greeks, become followers of Jesus, the name by which we have salvation. That's interesting. So as the gospel is going throughout the Roman Empire, prophecy is substantiating the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that's pretty impressive to me. But that wasn't nearly as impressive to me as it was to learn that Jesus himself appeals to the Old Testament to prove that he is the Messiah. That is actually really impressive. That's a bold claim, by the way. For a man to be able to point back to some texts written hundreds of years before him and say, that's me. <laughs> you better be right. Now, I want to show you in Luke chapter 24, this is exactly what Jesus does. Right? In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49, Jesus is going to speak after his resurrection because he has fulfilled incredible prophecies through his resurrection. Jesus is going to speak after his resurrection to those who are in his presence. Now, he has had this incredible encounter where there's a couple of guys on the road to Emmaus who he's, he's talking with, and they don't recognize him, and his disciples are struggling to figure out, you know, what's going on, and is Jesus the Messiah, and, you know, what's this whole idea of him rising from the dead, and Jesus is going to help them. And this is what he says in verse number 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the Law of Moses. That's the first five books. In the Prophets, uh, by the way, the Law of Moses and the Prophets would include probably books of history as well. He's just giving a general su uh, summation. But the Law of Moses, the first five books. The Prophets, that is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai, all those people that you may never read. And the Psalms, that is the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and wisdom. The entire thing, guys, the entire Old Testament was pointing to me. I fulfilled it all. He reasoned with them. He helped them understand this is what had to take place. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is, this is, what is written. The Christ would suffer or will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then verse 47. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The story goes on to say this in verse number 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. You had a chance to see in living color the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied previously. And I'm going to send you, those of you who had a chance to see this, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is a prophecy about the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Right? Isn't this cool? Peter, Paul, not Mary, Jesus. Okay? Peter, Paul, Jesus all appealed to prophecy to say the Messiah had come. Right? Now, I know that so far that you are not even close to being wowed and amazed. I got it. Because all I've given you is just some history so far. And you're like, okay, great. They appeal to that. And I'm not even, I don't even know for sure what all the prophecies he's talking about. I get it that in the 21st century church, we don't actually talk a whole lot about prophecy anymore. It seems like a foreign concept. 
But in the first century, appealing to prophecy was one of the most powerful, effective tools of helping people understand that Jesus was the Christ. And so I thought today, for the next couple of minutes, I would try to appeal to prophecy for you. Now, this is going to be unique at Solace Church. It shouldn't be, but it's going to be because I don't think in 12 years I've ever talked about the fulfillment of prophecy through Jesus. Maybe I have, but I can't remember a single week. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Maybe I should have done that after 12 years, but, but, but no longer am I going to apologize because we're going to do it today. What is prophecy? Prophecy is very simply some person declaring as fact that something will take place in the future. And true prophecy is when that statement or that declared fact actually comes to pass. So what we have in the scriptures, as this, these texts say, what we have in what's called our Old Testament are men who wrote down and orally spoke that certain things would come to pass and hundreds or in some context close to a thousand years later, these things actually did come to pass. Uh, Jesus was a prophet. Jesus himself uh, was talking with his disciples and he looked over at the temple and he said, you see that right there? It's not going to stay standing. Every stone is going to be leveled on that building. AD 70 comes around. That place is leveled, proving that Jesus was exactly right in that prophecy. He was a prophet, right? In the Old Testament, this is exactly what happens. Old Testament writers tell the Jewish people a Messiah is coming. One who takes away our sins is coming, right? Now, Josh McDowell does a great job. He wrote a pretty lengthy book, if you want to pick it up. It's called Josh McDowell, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Feel free to pick it up. It will be a lengthy read for you, but basically this is an incredible book that goes through many of the arguments for defense of the Christian faith. In this book, he lays out this whole idea of prophecy. And you can go online, by the way, on YouTube. I watched it this just last week. Josh McDowell speaks about fulfilled prophecies uh, in the life of Jesus. I'm going to do Josh McDowell a huge favor and steal from him, if that's okay. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Josh McDowell does an incredible job laying out for us how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you, just in, in summary, some of the key points about how the Old Testament all points to the coming Messiah. Who he had to be, where he had to come from. So, just for a moment, I want to take you to this, 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 uh, this, this screen. Josh McDowell helps us understand, this is not Josh McDowell's own research by himself, this has just been proven out through Scripture. Josh McDowell helps us understand exactly what the Old Testament says about who the Messiah would be. And this is what the Old Testament says. Starting all the way back in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised Adam and Eve that through the seed of a woman, that, the, that there would be one to come who would crush the head of the serpent. It's a, it's a messianic prophecy, a, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, this is interesting because in the, in the Old Testament, New Testament as well, when you talk about lineage, when you talk about how someone came to be, it's almost exclusively through the lineage or the seed of a man. This is one of the, one of the, uh, uh, one of the times in scriptures, maybe the only time in scripture, where we see that it's through the seed of a woman that someone significant would come, right? Well, that's important because we know that Jesus was born of a virgin. There was no seed of a man. It was only the seed of a woman. And so there's a messianic prophecy from the very beginning, right? 
Not only that, but we see that during the time of Noah, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Josh McDowell suggests that the entire nations of the world, every nation can be traced back to Shem, Ham, or Japheth. If that is true, if that is true, then when we see in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come through the lineage of Shem, that God excluded two-thirds of the nations of the earth when he said that the lineage of Shem would be the lineage by which the Messiah would come. Now, Shem had many, many children, but God, uh, through, through a series of prophecies, declared that the, through the descendants of Abraham, the Messiah would come. It was through Abraham's offspring that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was through Abraham's off, offspring that there would be a Messiah. Not only that, but Abraham also had eight children. Abraham ate, had eight children, two with Sarah. And, and so what God does in this, in this idea of narrowing down who the Messiah would be is he says he eliminates seven-eighths of Abraham's children, and he says it is through the line of Isaac the Messiah would come. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. God eliminates the lineage of Esau. 50%, another 50% gone. He eliminates the line of Esau, and he says it's through the line of Jacob that the Messiah would come. Do you see the narrowing effect? All the nations of the earth, two-thirds are gone. Now we eliminate all the way down to a, a family line, right, uh, through the line of Jacob. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. They're called the 12 tribes of Israel. And God prophesied uh, that, that it would be through the tribe of Judah. So uh, 11 twelfths of the tribes are now gone through the tribe of Judah, the Messiah would come. Also, he eliminates it further. In the tribe of Judah, there are many, many families, but it would only be through the family of Jesse that the Messiah would come. This is all in the Old Testament. You can read it for yourself. And not only that, but Jesse had eight sons. He eliminates seven-eighths of all of Jesse's sons and says that no, it will only come through the house of David, the runt. I love that because I'm a runt myself. I love that David wins. Not only that, and there are many, many others, by the way, but not only that. Not only did he pick the exact lineage and line and the house and family by which the Messiah would come, he also tells us exactly where this Messiah would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, do you know that in, in Israel there are actually two cities called Bethlehem? Did you know that? There's one in the north and one in the south. And, and God, through the prophets, wanted to make sure that he, we didn't get confused about with Be which Bethlehem he's talking about. And so he narrows it down to speak of the one in the southern part of Israel, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. He continues to whittle it down so narrow that there is a specific person that must fulfill this. He wasn't vague and, and general about a Messiah coming. He said, no, this is how you'll know. This is exactly how you'll know which person I'm talking about who is the Messiah, right? Josh McDowell suggests to us, and this has been researched by many, many others, that there are actually about 333 prophecies in the Old Testament. <laughs> I love that number, right? It's the number of completion. It's the number of the Trinity. It shows completeness. Whether that's exactly right or not, there's some dispute, but at least 300 plus uh, prophecies in the Old Testament. Here's the deal. You ready? All right. <clears throat> Jesus has fulfilled, or through his death, birth, death, burial, and resurrection, will fulfill all 333 of those prophecies. Okay. Do I have time to prove that to you today? No. I can just tell you that after a thorough vetting of the process, Jesus has been proven as the one to fulfill those, those prophecies. Now, now for fun. Those of you who like uh, statistics, me and maybe one guy in the back raised his hand. That's great. Six of us. Okay, good. For those of you who like that, I want you to think about the significance of that statement for a moment. Now, can I verify that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies? I think I can, uh, and, and certainly it's been done far better than I could ever do it. But read Matthew chapter 1 and 2 in your spare time. Matthew makes the point 
to prove that these, that these prophecies were fulfilled to the letter in Matthew 1 and 2 in the birth narrative, uh, birth narrative of, of the story of Jesus. Read it for yourself this week because it's Christmas and that would just be appropriate to read the story of Jesus around Christmas. Josh McDowell says this. Actually, this is based on Peter Stoner's research. Peter Stoner was a mathematician who actually went about trying to see the significance of this story of Jesus being the fulfillment of these prophecies. Uh, this is what Peter Stoner concluded. He's a mathematician. He said, for Jesus to have filled just eight of the 333 prophecies, for him to have fulfilled those eight prophecies, the chance of, of any one person ever fulfilling those, just eight of those, would be one times 10 to the 17th power. Do you know what that number is? I don't either. I have no idea how to pronounce that number. All that to say, it's a crazy large number, which is to say, coincidence could never make it happen. And some people have said, well, Jesus, after he found out that he was close, you know, born in Bethlehem, he started making some stuff up about how he was actually the one to fulfill the prophecy. Well, that's not even close to being possible. All this stuff happened before Jesus was ever born. He couldn't have made any of this kind of stuff up, right? So, all right, so. For those of you who like illustrations, just think about this for a moment. Peter Stoner says this. The chance of, of any one person fulfilling just eight of the 333 and he fulfilled them all, of, of one person doing this, is the same odds as if you were to take quarters and, and, and uh, uh, scatter them two feet thick all or two feet deep all over the state of Texas, the entire state of Texas, two quarters, two feet deep all over the state of Texas, and then mark one of them with an X, and then randomly place that on the state somewhere. And then take a man and blindfold him and put him in El Paso, Texas, and have him to start walking as far and as long as he wants to walk, in any direction he wants to walk, and randomly at some point reach down and pull up a quarter. The odds of him pulling up the quarter with the X are the same odds as one man fulfilling just eight of the 333 prophecies. That's pretty good. Not bad. It's either the most incredible coincidence ever, much like atheists have to say about the creation of the world itself, or there was sovereign wisdom involved of telling people beforehand that this person was going to come, right? Now, that was amazing to me to learn that. But that's not even in the story. This week, I actually found out something, and I've, I'm so sorry this is true about your 38-year-old pastor, that I had never heard before in terms of prophecy. Forgive me for not knowing this, but I didn't until I began to research this in some depth. Do you know, and this is one of the arguments that's made against Jesus. Well, maybe he kind of, kind of roughly fit the whole idea of Messiah, but do you know that Jews today are still waiting on the Messiah to come? They don't believe that Jesus was the, was the fulfillment. They don't believe he is the name by which we are saved. So those who still embrace Judaism are waiting on a Messiah. There's a significant problem with that. Do you know that in the Old Testament, in the prophets, they actually tell us the time when the Messiah would come? There's actually a, a prophecy that you can look in Malachi chapter 3 and also what we're going to see for the next couple of minutes in Daniel chapter 9, where we see that not only did Jesus have to meet all this criteria, 333 prophecies, but he had to do it in the time frame in which the Old Testament says that it's going to happen. Now that would be impressive, if that actually happens. So, so here's what I want us to do. <clears throat> if by chance you checked out on the message to this point and you might have dozed off, would you just wake up for a moment because I, I got to have you fully engaged. Like I need your brain like all the way engaged because we're going to do some math and it's a little bit complicated. And so 
So let's do it together, right? So in Daniel chapter 9, let me just set the context. Daniel is praying. He's praying for his people. He's praying that God would do a work of restoration. He's praying for his own sins. He's asking God for clarity. God sends Gabriel and gives him an incredible message. This is what prophecy really is. It's inspiration. God giving a message to someone hundreds of years in advance and seeing it later fulfilled in specific actions. Okay, so now, this is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This is the vision that Daniel sees. All right, so, verse 24. Seven Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, see if you see any kind of Christian doctrine lines through there, to atone for wickedness, to bring, everlasting, bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and then to anoint the most holy. This sounds incredibly Christian, doesn't it? To put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness. Those are the claims we make about Jesus, right? It's exactly the claims that Christianity makes about Jesus, right? So Daniel says that 77s are decreed for this to happen. What is 77s or what kind of time frame are we talking about? All right, so here we go. Follow me. In the Old Testament, it's generally understood that one day, in talking about prophecies, generally represents a year. And we're going to see as this story unfolds that when he uses the idea of 77s, he's talking about 70 weeks. So follow the line of thought. One day equals one year. One week has seven days in it, so one week would be seven years. So far, so good? There are going to be 70 of those. So seven times 70 would give you the total amount of years that's going to transpire before this prophecy comes to be. All right, so my math friend, 70 times seven is... Oh, good, you guys are on it. Okay, so 490 years is the time frame. So far, so good. All right, now... What does Daniel say is going to take place in 490 years? Here we go, verse 25. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Do some math for me. Seven plus 62 is... Yeah, that's right, 69... And 69 weeks times seven days in those weeks would be 483, which would give us 483 years of the 490 years that are supposed to transpire in this prophecy. You all tracking with me? All right. So, yeah, yeah. No? Okay. It's okay. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So, so what, did, what did Daniel just tell us? No, understand this. From the issuing of the decree, what's the decree? The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Why did it need a decree? Because in 586, Babylon, Babylon, Babylon in the Babylonian exile, destroys the city of Jerusalem and the temple in 586. And Daniel is prophesying after that destruction, and he's saying that there's going to come a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. It's coming. From the time that decree happens, when does that decree take place? Most scholars suggest that that decree that he's talking about is the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the, the, the city walls and the, and the temple. And that decree took place in 457 B.C. So from 457 B.C., the clock starts ticking. And there are 483 years until the Messiah would come. Oh man, we got to hope the math works. If it doesn't, we're in trouble. 
What's the math? 457 plus 483. Now remember, you've got to cross over from B.C. to A.D., so don't get confused. You've got to cross over that time threshold. 483 years from the decree is 27 A.D. What happens in 27 A.D.? Thank you, Luke. Luke, the, guy, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, tells us that in, the, in Luke chapter 3, in the 15th year of Tiberius. Do you know what the 15th year of Tiberius is? 27 A.D. What happens in Luke chapter 3? Jesus is baptized. You know what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and descends from heaven. The heavens open and God the Father declares, this is the anointed one. He's my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, verse number 25 or 26. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and it will have nothing. The people of the uh, of the the ruler will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been uh, decreed. Verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. I'm not going to explain those last two verses in detail because I don't have time except to say, what Daniel has just told us is the anointing would become 483 years, three years later. In three and a half more years, he would be cut off. That is, he will be killed. The word cut off is kara. It means to die a violent death. And again, the prophecy itself in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, is teaching us that all this would take place before the destruction of the temple that is to come. Daniel prophesied that there would be a decree for the temple and the destruction of the temple, and all that would take place. And, and before the, the destruction of the temple uh, in a certain year, which is the year the temple was destroyed. You're saying it. Go ahead and say it loud or you get credit if you do it loud. 70 AD. Very good. Thank you the Messiah would come. Michael Brown, who, is, who has his PhD and I think it's Near Eastern uh, uh, languages, has studied this. He's a Jew himself, Jewish by ethnicity or by birth, has studied this in depth. And here's what he, he, has, he has stated to us. It's a powerful statement. Ready? Here's what he said. If Jesus was not the Messiah, no one can be. We ran out of time. Now, in conclusion, I want to show you one more verse. It totally sheds light on a verse of Scripture that we sometimes use around the Christmas season to speak about the whole idea of how significant the birth of Jesus is. Look at this verse in Galatians chapter 4 and 5. But when the time had fully come. Wow. God sent His Son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem. This Greek phrase, when the time had fully come, has the idea of the clock starting and ending at the exact right moment. Of course it did, because the decree went forth and the Messiah came. And God brought us the first Christmas in Bethlehem. Do Christians believe in Jesus just simply because we have blind faith? No. There is incredible evidence to believe in the Messiah, Jesus, who is the name by which we must be saved. So, 
in one week from today, you're going to open some presents that you don't need. (laughs) Under a tree. And my hope this year for you is that you would recognize that there is a name by which we might be saved. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.